here is where we're going today. Where we're going today is joy in seeing Jesus. That's what the disciples are going to have. That's what you and I can have. So joy in seeing Jesus. Getting that from John chapter 16, verses 16 through 22. So if you haven't yet, would you open your Bibles there? If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find it on page 587. Page 587. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this weekly time you give us to open your word and meditate on your word and study through your word. Help me to preach well. Help us all to hear well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So beginning in John chapter 16, verse 16, let me read to you the first few verses through verse 18. Jesus is speaking and he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So Jesus says, in a little while, you won't see me. Then, in a little while, you will see me. You see me now. Soon you won't see me. You'll see me again, and the disciples do not know what he's talking about. The, you'll see me again, that's new, at least in John. But in a little while you won't see me, that's nothing new. In fact, that's why they are, John says, sorrowful in their heart right now. They get that. They know that they see Jesus now. Soon they won't see him. He's been saying that for a while. Back in John chapter 7, verse 33, when Jesus was talking to the Jews, he said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. And then in John chapter 12, verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light, and he is the light, the light is among you for a little while longer. Same thing. And then most recently in John 13, 33, little children, yet a little while, there it is again, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, back in John 7, 33, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So the disciples know that. And that's why at this point they're filled with sorrow. They know that they're going to lose Jesus in a little while. They know that they will not be able to see him in a little while. But now, what is this talk about seeing him again in a little while? That's what has the disciples confused here. So what is Jesus talking about? Now you see me, now you don't. Now you see me, then you won't see me. You'll see me again. 
In a little while you won't see me, but then in another little while you will see me. What's he talking about? Well, there are three possibilities. And people have argued about which one it is over the centuries. But here are the three possibilities. Does this second little while, in other words, a little while, and then you will see me, is that little while referring to his resurrection? Is that referring to the sending of the Holy Spirit? Or is that referring to the second coming of Jesus? So when Jesus says, in a little while, you'll see me again, does he mean that in a little while they will see him after his resurrection? Does he mean in a little while they will see him through his Holy Spirit? Or does he mean in a little while they will see him at his second coming? Which is it? No, this time that's not right. (laughs) Way to start off listening to this sermon. Getting it wrong. So let me try to rule out two. As I'm thinking through this, I ruled out two of them. I don't think he's talking about the sending of the Holy Spirit. Because when Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, they're not literally going to see Jesus. So that would mean that when he says, in a little while you'll see me, he's speaking figuratively here. And I don't think he's talking figuratively. I think he means literally. And I don't think that he's talking about the second coming, because that seems a lot longer than a little while. So if a little while to his death, and then a little while to seeing him again. So that's what I think. I think the little while and they will see him again is referring to that period of 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus when he walked among his disciples. So let's read verse 16 again and see if that works. Let's insert that interpretation, see if that works. What did he say? A little while... And you will see me no longer. Why? Because I'm going to be crucified and buried in a tomb. So in a little while, you won't see me in a, any longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me. Because I will only be in a tomb for 36 hours. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. I think that's what he's talking about. And we can read ahead and hear about that actually taking place. Let me read you from Luke 24, some verses in 33 to 52. And they rose, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they rose that same hour, the disciples did, and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He showed himself to them. They're seeing him. And then in verse 50, then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. 
While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So I think that is what Jesus is talking about here. That is the, in a little while, you will see me. So we understand that. But the disciples didn't. We understand what Jesus was talking about. And they will understand what he's talking about. But for now, they don't. And one of the things that's interesting as we read on is that Jesus does not make it crystal clear for them. He never spells it out for them. He never tells them that the first little while is up until his death and the second little while is up until his resurrection. Instead, he spells out something different. Let's read what he spells out in verses 19 through 22. Jesus knew what they, that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will return into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus knows what they're wrestling with. When are they going to see him again? Or when will they not be sad anymore? They're sad. They know he's leaving. Now they're hopeful. They will see him again. What do you mean, Jesus, by a little while? When will we see you again? Jesus knew this. Verse 19. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, let's break down what Jesus said. How's he going to help them? How's he going to encourage them? First, in the rest of verse 19, he says their question back to them. Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. So the emphasis is on little while. And that's what they specifically ask about. Little while. And of course, when he asks them that, the answer is yes. That is what they are asking themselves. Jesus knows what they're asking themselves. And so he responds. And again, take note, he does not spell out what they want him to spell out. He doesn't explain the little while. He doesn't explain that the little while refers to this moment now up until my death and then this other little while from my death until my resurrection. He doesn't tell them what they want to hear. He doesn't answer the question they want answered, but he spells out something else that they need. 
Doesn't tell them what they want, tells them what they need. That's an important lesson in and of itself. But to say it another way, maybe to make this more relatable for you, the disciples want to know when. They want to know when. When will we see you again? It's not enough to know they'll see him again. They want to know when will we see you again? How long is a little while? They know Jesus well enough to know that it may not be clear what that means and how long it is. So, okay, a little while and we're going to see you. Well, just how long is a little while? When is this actually going to happen? When can we expect to be joyful again? When are we going to see you again? So how many of you have asked that question of God? When? I read in your word, you're going to do this. And what's the question you ask? What's the question I ask? When? Or how much longer? Why do I ask that question? Why do kids ask that question on long trips? You sound like Jesus, right? A little while. When are we going to be there? A little while. A little while goes by. When are we going to be there? A little while longer. What's that all about? It's not enough, is it, for us? It's not enough to know what's coming. We want to know when it's coming. Is that fair to say? It's not enough often for us to know what is coming. I want to know when it's coming. And maybe... Just maybe deep down for some of us, we doubt that it actually is going to happen. That we actually will get there. That the promise will be fulfilled. That his word will be true. So, like the disciples, we might ask the question, when? So they want to know when. And Jesus doesn't budge. He doesn't budge. He's not going to say, hold on for 36 hours and I'll be back. He could have said that. That's not what he says. That's what they want to know. I'm convinced that's what they want to know. But he doesn't say anything like that to them. Listen, it's going to be tough. I'm going to go, but it's only going to be 36 hours. And then you're going to see me again. On the third day, I'm going to rise. So hold on, disciples. That's not what he does. So let's take his response one verse at a time. He's going to give them a response in verse 20, and then he illustrates it in verse 21. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. So I hear three things that Jesus says. The first thing Jesus says here is that in a little while, he is going to leave them. And when that happens, they will weep and lament and be sorrowful. Nothing new there. 
The second thing Jesus says here is that when he leaves and they are weeping and lamenting, the world will rejoice. And that proves true. We can read about that. Here's what's new. The third thing Jesus says here is that though they will be sorrowful, their sorrow will turn into joy. So that's new. And that's what he wants to spell out for them. They know he's leaving. They're sorrowful over that. He knows they're sorrowful. It's why he's been comforting them. But now here he gives them something new. Your sorrow won't stay sorrow. Your sorrow will turn into joy. And we could actually jump ahead to John 20, 20 and read about that taking place. Now in verse 21, all he does in verse 21 is he illustrates that experience of sorrow turning into joy. That's what verse 21 is. How does he illustrate it? It's a great illustration. You would expect Jesus to give great illustrations. Verse 21 When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So here's how the illustration goes. There is intense sorrow and anguish one moment, and then there is intense joy the next. That's this illustration of a woman giving birth to a child that he uses to illustrate sorrow turning into joy. The word anguish here can also mean affliction or tribulation. So intense sorrow and intense anguish, intense affliction and tribulation one moment, and intense joy the next. And that is a really good description of the typical experience of childbirth. Not that I have ever given birth to a child. (laughs) But I've heard the anguish is intense. It looks intense. It sounds intense intense. I have nothing to compare it to. Intense anguish, intense sorrow. But once the child is born, what happens? She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus is saying, disciples, This is what you are going to experience when you see me again. Your intense sorrow is going to turn into intense joy. Look at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So again, 
all the way through verse 22, Jesus never spells out the timing of all this. They don't know when this is going to happen. We know they didn't. What he spells out is that when they see him again, whenever that will be, in a little while, their sorrow is going to be overcome with joy. Or their sorrow will be overshadowed by joy. Or their sorrow will turn into joy. And then he adds a final and very important truth in verse 22. Did you see what he added at the end of verse 22? And no one will take your joy from you. So you have sorrow. It's going to turn into joy. And no one will take your joy from you. Which is different from saying you will always be joyful. That's different. He doesn't say you're always going to be joyful. He doesn't say you'll, you'll always be experiencing joy. He says no one will take your joy from you. In other words, joy is always there to be had for a Christian. It's always there to be had. But that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, you know this, if you've been a Christian for longer than 60 seconds, you know that you don't always feel that joy, you don't always experience that joy, it comes, it goes, it's a battle, it's a struggle, you have to fight for it, but it's always there to be had. No one can take it from you. That's the good news of what he adds at the end. No one will take your joy from you. So that's just a summary. We'll apply it. But that's just a summary of what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And they don't get it yet, but they're going to get it. Okay, in a little while, your sorrow, it's going to get much more intense. He's going to die. They're going to lose him. And another little while, they're going to see him again. And when they see Jesus their sorrow will instantly turn to joy. And that joy will not be fleeting. It won't be momentary. No one will ever be able to take it from them. So that's his encouragement to them. So let's apply this. That's what he was saying to the disciples. What does this mean as we bring in other scripture what does this mean for you and for me as Christians? So I came up with three points, and I hope you're helped by them. Number one, Christians are joyful. Christians are joyful. And if you're here today and you're a Christian and you feel like you hardly ever have joy, or you're not joyful right now, please don't resent me for saying that. That Christians are joyful. If you stay with me, I think you'll be helped. Because you ever hear something like that, and it's hurtful. Christians are joyful. Well, I'm a Christian and I don't have a lot of joy right now. Or maybe 
you're a Christian and you feel like you hardly ever have joy. So don't resent that truth. Stay with me and I think you'll be helped. But according to what Jesus says here, that is true for his disciples and is true for all of his children, for Christians, joy is inevitable for a Christian. If you're a Christian, you will be joyful. Look back at verse 20 in what he said to the disciples. He did not say that their sorrow may turn into joy. He said your sorrow will turn into joy. So he didn't say, right, you're going to see me, and then the potential for joy will be there. He said, no, your sorrow will turn into joy. Is that true for a Christian? It is. It is. I'll just give one verse, Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. A Christian is joyful. So if you're here today and you are a Christian and you're not joyful, something is wrong. And that's okay. It's okay for something to be wrong. There's a lot of things wrong with me. Something needs attention. And if you don't know something's wrong, you're not going to do anything about it. If you don't know something needs attention, you're not going to pay it any attention. So if you're here today and you're a Christian and you hardly ever feel joyful, or if you're here today and you're a Christian and right now you are not joyful, hear this, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Something needs attention. It's not to say that that isn't normal for a Christian to experience joy and not experience joy, but when you're not experiencing joy, you need to do something about it. It needs your attention. And we'll see what we have here in Jesus' words that will help us. I was thinking about this and how to illustrate this. How does joy work for a Christian? And I thought of a couple things. Joy, I think, is like a fountain in a Christian. And what can happen in your Christian life is you can clog that fountain where that fountain is not doing what that fountain is supposed to be doing. Now, I've experienced this in, in many ways in my home and with my children. Things often don't work the way they're supposed to work. So we have a swimming pool. And uh, this swimming pool has a, it's called a fountain, but it's more of like a little waterfall. And it pours water into the pool when you flip a switch up at the house. Looks neat. Sounds neat. So we love the waterfall. Well, a couple years ago, it stopped working. And the way this works is it, it takes water from the big swimming pool, right? It pumps water from the big swimming pool, and then it puts it into this little 
pool that overflows into the swimming pool, and that's how you get your waterfall. That's how you get your fountain. Well, trying to figure out why isn't this thing working? Well, I look at the part in the swimming pool where it takes the water out of the swimming pool, and there's normally a protective cover Right on this two-inch diameter pipe, there's normally a cover on that to keep things or toys from going into it. Because if things go into it, it's it's not going to work. Well, if any of you have boys, you know that there's this thing with little boys, and little boys like to put things where they know they don't belong. It's it's funny to them. Last week, uh, the toilet in our bedroom wasn't working. So I've had to do what I've had to do several times. Tried everything. Tried plunging it. Doesn't work. I'm an expert plunger. I'm an expert. You, you can't outplunge me. I know how to do it. And I'm just plunging and plunging and plunging. Doesn't work. So what do I do next? I get the snake. The snake, this wired thing you put down there and you crank it. And it can get out whatever is, is the obstruction. So I do that. It's not working. So I did with a friend what I've had to do several times. What do you have to do next? You have to take the toilet apart. You have to take it off and you have to lift it off of the floor. You've got to go down to the hardware store, buy another one of those wax rings, put it all back together. It takes a couple hours to do this. just messes up your day. I'm not bitter about this. So I take the... I take the toilet off, and then I start jamming the snake up the bottom of the toilet. Let's put it the other way. So I'm going back and forth, and nothing's happening. There's something in there. It's not working. So we turn the toilet now upside down so the bowl is, is, is facing the shower. And I take this, and I'm, I'm just, just putting it in over and over again. And then we hear this thud in the shower. We got it. And I look, and it is my electric razor. Not cool for many reasons. (laughs) Who does that? That is clearly not where that goes. Oh, reedy, reedy, reedy. Stop putting stuff in the toilet. Everybody does this. So same problem with the fountain, right? Still not working, but I've gotten like three things out of there that weren't supposed to be there. And when they go in, it doesn't work right. It clogs the fountain. So there are things that can happen in your Christian life that are going to clog the fountain. That are going to keep the fountain from working right. That are going to keep you from the experience of joy. So when you pray, don't ask God for more joy. Isn't that how you, that's how I tend to pray. I'm not feeling joyful, God, give me more joy. Ask God to help you see what you are doing to smother joy. And we'll get there in point three. But ask God to reveal something you're doing. What am I doing to clog the fountain? So Christians are joyful. That is how it's supposed to work. Number two, 
Christian joy is not dependent on circumstances. This is really important. Because this is the difference between Christian joy and worldly joy. So Christian joy is not dependent on circumstances. If Christian joy were dependent on circumstances, it would be weak. But Christian joy is, uh, John Piper uses the word indomitable, the great word. It's indomitable. It means it cannot be overthrown. It cannot be conquered. That's Christian joy. You can't subdue it. You can't defeat it. So it is not dependent on circumstances. Think about worldly joy or think about worldly happiness. What, what kills it? What kills happiness? Everybody knows this. What kills happiness is pain or a hardship or suffering or sadness. These things come into your life and they rob the joy. That's a common experience. These are the things that keep me from being happy. So what is my, uh, what is my tactic then if I don't have joy, if I'm not experiencing this happiness? Well, I look to maybe control my circumstances. I try to control my circumstances so that things go the way I want them to go. Because if things go the way I want them to go, I'm going to be happy. So I try to control my circumstances. I try to control my work. And I try to control my spouse. And I try to control my kids. And I try to control my home. It gives you all kinds of trouble. But you're trying to control these things so that you can have that circumstantial happiness. And we're all tempted at one time or another to do it. Now, what happens when you can't control your circumstances? And now, here's the pain, and here's the suffering. How do I have happiness or joy now? Well, look at this from the world's perspective. You used to do it too. You're still tempted to do it. So here I am. Happiness is threatened because pain or suffering comes into my life. I could numb it. I could numb the pain. I could eat too much. I could drink too much distract myself from it. I could do things to get myself numbed so that I don't feel that pain anymore, so that I don't feel the weight of that sadness anymore, so that I don't feel that suffering anymore. So maybe I have things that I go to to distract myself from it, to numb myself to it. That's a common tactic because I believe I can't be happy. I can't be happy in these kinds of circumstances. I failed to control them. What do I do now? So maybe you numb the pain. Another thing we might do is to avoid the pain. I avoid the pain. So I avoid confrontation. I avoid difficulty. Uh, I avoid relationships. I avoid commitment. And I avoid all these things because I know that that puts me in a place where I might experience pain and suffering. Or third and finally, another thing so many of us have become so good at is I just deny it. I just deny the pain and the suffering. And Christians are, can be notorious for this. Well, I know I'm not supposed to numb it. 
I know I'm not supposed to avoid it. I need to be in community. I need to be in fellowship. And so what about this? When things are painful and things are sad and things are suffering, and you just keep telling everybody that everything is fine. Have you ever done that? How are you doing today? And you just lie. You lie straight right through your teeth, right? I'm great. I'm fine. And you're not. But you tell yourself that too. And you're just trying to deny it. No, everything is fine. I'm okay. Things are going to get better. There's a silver lining right around the corner, I'm sure. Right? And you're just trying to talk yourself into it. And the reason you're doing that is because you believe that your happiness and your joy is contingent on your circumstances. So we're saying that Christian joy is indomitable. Well, it doesn't mean that when you become a Christian, all the pain and suffering is taken from you. If you've got a worldly understanding of happiness and you hear that, oh, when I become a Christian, there's always joy, then that must mean that all of my circumstances change and and there's no more sadness anymore and there's no more sorrow anymore. But that's not true. And most of you know, some of you feel like when you became a Christian, there was more sorrow. You feel like there was more suffering. There was more sadness or there was more pain. That's not the case. When you become a Christian, the pain doesn't stop. Joy for a Christian is not the absence of pain. So look back at the illustration that that Jesus gives. I mean, this joy is indomitable. He said, no one will take this joy from you. So that's one way he said it. But look at the illustration. Think about the illustration that he uses. He doesn't say that once the child is born, the sorrow and the anguish will stop. That isn't what he said, is it? He said, you won't remember it anymore. But he doesn't say the sorrow and anguish will stop. It doesn't. Those of you moms here who have given birth to children, you know that's not true. The pain doesn't stop physically. It goes on past that. It could last for weeks, last for months. That's not true. The pain doesn't stop. The anguish doesn't stop. What about the emotional anguish of raising children, moms? Does that stop? That lasts. It lasts as long, moms, as you live. Sorrow and anguish over these children. Because you're so deeply knit to them. Because you love them so much. So that's not why the mom has joy in the illustration that Jesus gives. It's not that the pain stops. It's not that the anguish stops. The anguish and sorrow is eclipsed by something else. She is overwhelmed by something else. And in that case, she's overwhelmed with this little baby boy or this little baby girl. The pain is still there, but it's overshadowed. 
it is swallowed up by joy. Think about this. Think about this. It means that Christians can be very realistic about pain and suffering and sorrow and don't run from it and don't shy away from it. Some would say that Christians can be the most pessimistic and the most optimistic. And it's true. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So what is it, this is the third and final application point, so what is it that that Christians are swallowed up by that gives them joy? So this is joy alongside the sorrow and the pain and the suffering. It is joy that every Christian has available to them. It is joy that we want and desire, and it doesn't depend at all on circumstances. You can have the worst circumstances. So what is it? What is a Christian overwhelmed by? And think about the disciples here. So number three, Christian joy is the result of seeing Jesus. Christian joy is the result of seeing Jesus. The disciples' joy will return when they see Jesus. And their joy will last, he says, even after those 40 days when Jesus is no longer there physically, just like Jesus is not before you physically, Christian. But their joy is going to last. No one will ever take joy from them. No one will ever take Jesus from them. Never again. So those 36 hours were very dark for them. But after that, no one ever took Jesus from them. They always had him. He told them and you, I am with you always even to the end of the age. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. He is with you, Christian. His very presence mediated to you by the Holy Spirit. Always. 24-7. Christian joy is the result of seeing Jesus. It is not the result of circumstances. Christian joy is not the result of success or productivity or righteousness or reputation or relationships or being loved by someone or health or money or possessions or security. It's not the result of any of those things. I know the ones that get me. I know the things that I tend to look to for joy. And they're in that list. I find my, it's so frustrating. I find myself, I find myself doing this. One way is I might have joy based on 
my foreseen circumstances over the next few days. So if I have some things on the calendar that look enjoyable, maybe tonight or tomorrow or the next day, then I'm joyful. And I find in times when I'm not joyful, I'll start looking forward to some of those things. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I know when it's a bad thing for me. When I need that. I woke up today and I was very joyful. I was very joyful because my son Blaze turned seven today. And we're having a birthday party for him this afternoon. So that's why I was joyful. I should be joyful because of that. But that was why I was joyful. And not much else was on my radar this morning. That's what I was looking forward to. More than I was looking forward to being with all of you. No offense. But I didn't like that. And I didn't think that was right. I should be looking forward to that, but I should be looking forward to this. And I should be more joyful that I know Jesus and have His Holy Spirit and my sins have been paid for. I mean, these kinds of things, right? But the other thing I look to, it's really nasty, is my righteousness. My righteousness. So, for me, I... My level of joy is, is so wickedly connected to how good I am. So if I'm doing good and I'm doing the right things and saying the right things and I'm being patient with my kids and I'm overlooking sin and I'm being diligent in my work and, and on and on and on. If I'm doing those things and I'm being righteous, I'm joyful. And if I'm not, I'm not joyful. So what is your joy based on? What, what is your joy based on? Your success, your how productive you are, how righteous you are, the, the relationships you have, certain relationships, your reputation, being loved by someone. Is it health? Is it money? Is it your possessions? Is it security? What circumstance is it that you find is key, it feels like, to your joy? What do you look upon for joy? Now, we're saying it should be Jesus. We're saying it should be Jesus. Here's how it works in the illustration. All right, what is the, the new mom in that delivery room when she's overwhelmed with joy? Why is she overwhelmed with joy? Moms, do you remember this? What is she looking at? She's looking at her baby. And she's overwhelmed. It eclipses everything in that moment. Okay, she's... She is not interested in what's playing on the television on the wall of the delivery room. Okay, but that's what we're doing when we're finding our joy in things other than Jesus. It's that sort of, are you kidding me? Why am I doing that? But we do. So, 
Back to what I said at the beginning and in conclusion. To all of you unjoyful Christians this morning. Because maybe this hasn't been all, maybe all this has done is made you feel guilty up until this point. Those of you who are not joyful today or who really struggle with being joyful, you know this. You know these things that I've said. So why aren't you joyful? Why aren't you joyful? If something is clogging that fountain. And let me suggest two things. Two final things. Tim Keller describes two things that clog joy for a Christian. And I'll state them in the form of two questions. So two things to think about. Do you ever struggle with this? <laughs> I hope you struggle with this. It is normal for the Christian to struggle with finding and experiencing the joy that we're supposed to. If it hasn't happened yet, it probably will happen. So what do I do in those times? Two questions to ask yourself. Number one, is your conscience clear? Is your conscience clear? What is in the way? Is your conscience clear? Are you hiding something? Are you hiding something? Is there something that no one knows? Is there secret sin that you are harboring? Well, no wonder. No wonder you don't feel joy. Your conscience is stricken. It's meant to turn you from your sin and turn you to Jesus. And you may not be turning. You may be indulging that sin. So is your conscience clear? If you are realistic with yourself, about yourself. Remember, Christians can do that. There's, there's hope on the other end of this. If you're being honest with yourself, is your conscience clear? What is it that you need to address? What is it you need to come clean about? What is it you need to confess and ask forgiveness for? What is it you need counsel with? What is it? Where is the weakness? What needs to be dealt with? Is your conscience clear? If your conscience is not clear, that will keep you from joy. So that's number one. And then number two, are you meditating on Christ? Okay, this is what it means to see Christ. Are you meditating on Christ? So this has to be more, and we've talked a lot about this. This has to be more than, you know, checking things off the list. It has to be more than just reading your Bible and praying, check, check. Are you reading your Bible? Okay, check. Are you praying? Okay, check. But are you, are you meditating? Are you thinking is what we mean. Are you thinking about what you're reading? Are you thinking about what you're learning? Are you rejoicing in what you are reading in God's word? Do you think on these things? Or maybe you're so busy that you don't have time to think on these things. You don't have time to meditate on Jesus. You don't have time to just enjoy him. 
Maybe as you look at your life, you don't enjoy a lot of the things in your life. Do you enjoy the foods you eat? Do you enjoy the work that you do? Do you, parents, do you enjoy your children? Do you enjoy your friendships? Do you enjoy your spouse? Or are you just so busy doing things that you're not actually enjoying any of these things? And if so, you may not also know how to just slow down and enjoy Christ. So what this looks like when your joy is gone is clearing your conscience, number one, and then staring at Christ through the word of God and thinking on Christ through the word of God until there is joy. And when will that happen? In a little while. I don't know. There's no formula here. There's no answer to it. But there will be no joy without this. So we look to Christ. So that's what I have to train myself to do. That's what I have to train myself to do. So the joy is gone. I don't want these go-tos where I start controlling my circumstances or where I schedule something on my calendar that I will enjoy doing or where I'll, I'll commit myself to righteousness on this day or I'll make sure that I'm productive so I don't feel like this tomorrow. Those, that's a wrong way to go about it. I deal with my conscience. I clear my conscience and then I've got to open God's Word, and I need to read God's Word, and I need to think on God's Word, and I need to tell myself God's Word until, until that's enough. Until my joy returns. And I've literally experienced that, just like that. Sometimes it's in 30 seconds, sometimes it's 30 days. But you keep looking and looking and looking and meditating and meditating and meditating and being faithful and being faithful and being faithful. And I hope you've experienced that. And then at some point, it comes, doesn't it? That's what I needed. That's what I needed to understand. And if you had those moments where everything around you is falling apart, Everything around you is falling apart. And you are moved maybe even to tears because you are so filled with joy. That is supernatural. There is no explanation for that outside of what we're reading today. That's the Christian joy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, will you help us to be readers of your word? Will you help us to be those who who slow down and meditate on your word? Will you help us to be a people who are faithful in this, who are looking to you, not looking to ourselves? God, will you give us this grace? We thank you for your word today, and we thank you for the truth that is there for us. And we thank you for the joy that is to be had in Christ. In the rest of our service this morning, God, would you fill us with your spirit so that we may honor you and praise you and glorify you and give you what you deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.